All right, good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Good morning. You know, the funny thing, I said this last week, we tested Ed's mic 50 times before the service started. So either it's Ed or it's y'all. I'm not sure which it is, but trust me, we're trying our best. Well, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. If you're new here, I'm glad you're here. Uh, My hope is that you find this to be a place where you can take the next step closer to God, uh, regardless of where you are in that journey. And for some people, that may be just trying to even figure out if there is a God. And one of the things, um, I've told you guys my story too many times, but I walked away from God for like 18 years. And when I came back, I began to read the Word. I began to read the Bible, not so much as a book, but more trying to understand what the author was trying to tell me. And I discovered in that process that only God could have written this book. And between the prophecies and between other things, one of the things, though, where I just sat back and I said, that has to be God, is the way threads are woven through Scripture. From beginning to end, writers who lived in different eras, different cultures, different backgrounds, all different educational levels over 1,500 years, never met each other. And they were used by God to deliver his message. And sometimes just a few words can open up this incredible meaning in Scripture that if you're not familiar with all of Scripture or a lot of Scripture, you just read right through it. And we're going to look at one of those moments today, one of those moments when a word or a phrase or something is used that's designed to remind you of something else if you're tuned into the Spirit, but if you're not, you blow right through it. And and it's amazing to me how many of these are in Scripture and how once you see them and you understand them, you begin to see the threads that are woven. And that's what helped me to believe that this book could only be written by God. And once I believed it was written by God, it was really easy for me to say, okay, whatever it says is true and whatever I think is not. So if God wrote that book and he created me, I'm following the book. And that became the easiest thing for me because I realized these words in this book are too wonderful for us. We really don't deserve them. We've been looking at a flashpoint moment that occurred when the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples and the believers in Solomon's portico at the temple on the day of Pentecost. The text here is easy to read. You can read this story and go, okay, I get it. Uh, They were there, they spoke in a foreign language, people thought they were drunk, but they weren't. Check. And yet, you could spend years, and I'm serious, years, studying this one moment in Christian history. Every word, everything God says in his passage has meaning, and it all matters. And last week, we looked at the symbolism of the paralyzed man being healed by the Holy Spirit at conversion, and he ran in the presence of God to Solomon's portico. If you missed last week, go back and watch it, because the symbolism is huge. In that sermon, I shared that God was doing something new. The temple represented the old covenant, the Jewish laws, the traditions, the sacrifices. God had been contained within the Holy of Holies in a sense, behind the curtain. God was with man, but God was not yet in man. 
And yet at this moment, God's doing something completely new. God's no longer in the Holy of Holies. Jesus tore the temple curtain. He's now moving into the heart of all believers, not just Jewish people, but everybody. He's filling the temple with His presence, both the Jew and the Gentile who believe. Their bodies now would be the new temple. Believers house the Holy Spirit and become the temple of God. In a sense, God is moving from the old ways of Judaism, the ritual laws of performance, and He's dancing across the courtyard in freedom of of forgiveness and mercy and grace because of what Jesus has done. And then those people who start out at the temple become the temple and go out into the world to show people God. It's incredible when you think about it. He's now in the hearts of new believers. They would be the home of God. If the world was to see God in them, the world would have to go to them. And they would have to be vessels. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. New believers, old believers, all believers who are true in their faith have become the temple of God housing the Spirit of God for the purpose of people coming to your life and seeing God. Remember, everything the Holy Spirit does is to show Jesus to the world. We've been sent to use our lives, our purposes, our skills, our talents, everything God has given us to show Him to the world. It's not about us. It's always about Him. This man was set free from his paralysis, both physically and more important, spiritually. He'd been healed. He ran, he danced, he leaped across the temple court. We looked at it last week. He led a parade of new believers. And he represents all of us. Paralyzed people set free by the Holy Spirit. All of us have a moment in our lives when we realize that the message is for us too. The clear message in the temple on the days surrounding Pentecost, the year, that year was that God is now doing something new. Something new has come to the world. The new has come. God spoke of this to the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing now. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God says, look, I'm doing something new. As new as the creation of the world is, I'm now doing something new. Something that's never been done before. Not improved, new. Not restored, new. I'm doing something new. He's doing something so new that all the old ways of dealing with God couldn't contain it. The old Jewish traditions, they couldn't no longer represent him. The new covenant was like nothing the world had seen before. This covenant was new. I keep saying that, but I want you to get it. But it wasn't a surprise. 
It was new. It had never been seen on earth. God's doing something new, but it wasn't a surprise to them because the prophets had promised. God had promised a Messiah. God had promised a new covenant, a covenant that was a unilateral covenant. It's so important to understand. God says, look, I'm going to save as many as want to be saved. I'm doing this. You're not doing it. I'm doing it. It's my covenant. And look at what the prophet Jeremiah promised. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I'm going to make a new covenant with both the north and the southern kingdoms. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord for they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. Notice that in this verse, God speaks of himself. I'm going to do this. This is what I'm doing. You can't stop what I'm doing. I'm doing it. It's a covenant. It's new. As this man ran from the Jewish area of the temple, from the law towards the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus, he was, along with all the others, ushering in this new covenant. God was writing on their hearts and placing his spirit there. It had never been done before. On this day of Pentecost, in the temple of God, the Holy Spirit of God fell on believers. The day Jeremiah looked forward to was happening. In that day, I will do this, and now it's happening. And yet God wasn't through yet. Everything about this moment shouted, the old is gone, the new is here. That's what Pentecost is all about. The old is gone, the new has come. Look at what happens next. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Incredible. They were praising God in languages they had not known so that people could hear the message of Christ and believe. Why did they speak in tongues? Why tongues? Come back next week and we're going to talk about it. Next week we'll talk about what the tongues really represented and what they were really about and how they've been misrepresented ever since. Bad teaser there for you. But today I want to focus on those who doubted. Every time the word of God is presented, people mock it. You either run to it or you run away from it. Let's look at what they had to say. Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty work of God. And all were amazed and perplexed. Notice this. When the spirit fell, everybody was perplexed, even mockers. 
All were perplexed. What is going on here? This is new. Never seen this before. What does this mean, they said, amazed and perplexed. But others, mockers said, they are filled with new wine. They're filled with new wine. Can you believe he said that? They're filled with new wine. How can he say that? They're acting drunk. That's how we interpret that. And in doing so, we miss the incredible truth that God's trying to show us and that we're going to spend the rest of the day looking at. Sometimes God uses mockers to speak truth and they don't even know they're doing it. I love this. They think they're so smart and they say something like, hey, they're full of new wine. And the answer is absolutely they are. And I think God has a sense of humor. I think sometimes he gets a mocker to say what's true and they don't even know it. Isn't it odd they said that they're filled with new wine? Isn't that odd? When you read that, does that make you stop and go, huh? Why not just say they're full of wine? Why not just say they're drunk? Why not say they're blistered? Whatever, use your word, they're gone, they're over it, they've had too much alcohol. But no, they clearly say new wine. Two words, new wine. Remember when I told you and we all looked at how to study the Bible together? And I told you that every word in Scripture is placed there by God and it matters. So what's the big deal about new wine? So what? Well, did you know that from the beginning of Scripture, way back in Genesis, the term new wine referred to the Holy Spirit of God? Israel was the vineyard, Jesus the vine dresser, and the new wine is always the Holy Spirit. When these men mocked what was happening and said these people are full of new wine, they were right. The men were full of the Holy Spirit. God was doing something new. They were mocking the very thing that God was declaring and they had no idea. New wine is that which is pressed first. The pressing brings the purest wine. New wine in the Old Testament is often associated with the promised land. The promised land to come and the harvest it would bring. When you get to the promised land, you'll drink not just wine, new wine, the best of the best, the first pressed. Deuteronomy eleven thirteen, And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain your new wine and your oil. New wine and oil, images of the Holy Spirit. When you get to the promised land, I'm gonna pour out new wine and oil. Amos chapter nine, verse 13. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I'll bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. Deuteronomy 7:12. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. 
He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine, and olive oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks and the land he swore his ancestors to give to you. Throughout the Old Testament, there's a promise that when you get to the promised land, God is going to be faithful and he's going to deliver to you or provide for you new wine. So when this man stood mocking in the presence of the Holy Spirit, he had no idea what he was really saying. These people were fulfilling the promise. God is doing something new. He's pouring out new wine. He's pouring out the Holy Spirit. The promised Spirit was filling these people up with joy and celebration and life. I love that God used him to speak this incredible truth. New wine also had another meaning, a more tangible one. People who drank new wine got drunk really quickly. That's what the mocker was likely trying to say. They're drunk so fast, they're drinking new wine. You see, the first press of the grapes produced the wine that would be the most potent. When this man said they were full of new wine, it would be the same as saying, oh, they're full of Everclear. He's saying that they're full of new wine, and yet new wine is special. It was reserved for great celebrations, particularly weddings. In Jewish tradition, wine always represents joy and celebration. May your life be full of joy. The, the wine was always the product of the vineyard, the product of the grapes, the product of God's provision. Wine was served to show respect and honor to people. If you invited people to your home, you provided wine for them. You, you showed them the best. You gave them the most respect. You poured out God's blessings on the people that blessed your home. But most Jewish people never drank new wine unless it was diluted. It was too powerful, so they had huge vats of water nearby, usually to cut the wine so that people could enjoy the celebration longer without being drunk. See, God's doing something new. The old is being replaced. The Holy Spirit has come and God has come. And that moment changed everything forever. In this moment of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came to the people, when God moved into our hearts, the entire world changed forever. About three to four years earlier, Jesus and his family were invited to a wedding. The city was Cana. Jesus was a younger man who had some disciples, but really hadn't performed any miracles. His entire family was there, so the wedding is likely for somebody related to him, somebody in his family. He may have been involved as the family that's the host. John 2, 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. That, that implies that he was really close to this process. Not only was he invited, he was allowed to bring these new folks that started following him. But then something shameful happened. The family ran out of wine. To us, this would be like a wedding reception that ran out of food before the bride and groom ever even got to the room and before people were fed. Except that to run out of wine in Jewish culture was the ultimate humiliation. You actually withheld wine from guests who you didn't want there. To serve wine to somebody meant you accept them and you're glad they're there. 
If you skip their cup, you don't want them. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to his servants, to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now the word woman here does not carry disrespect in Hebrew. It was actually an endearing term that you saved only for the closest women in your life, your spouse, your mother, your sisters. Isn't it odd what Jesus said? My hour has not yet come. What? The wedding's now. My hour has not yet come. Mom, you know my hour hasn't come yet. What's he talking about? Hour? What hour? What does the wedding running out of wine have to do with the hour? What's Jesus trying to show us? Jesus knew that in the future there would be a time. There would be an hour when he would reveal who he really was. And in that hour, the meaning of wine would become clear to everybody. Something he would reveal at another Passover in about three years. When that time had come. Luke twenty two fourteen. When the hour came. When the hour came. He reclined at the table and the disciples with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again and it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and when he'd given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant. It's poured out for you and it's here because of my blood. You see, my hour has now come. What I prophesied, what I showed you a glimpse of at the wedding at Cana, my hour has now come. I can reveal who I am, why I'm here, what my purpose is. The new wine. The wine that would usher in the new covenant was made available only through the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. Jesus knew that bringing wine too soon was not ordained by the prophets. He's telling his mom, my time hasn't yet come to reveal the new wine. I'm just starting my ministry. It's not time yet. The covenant hasn't been paid for. My blood hasn't been spilled yet. You see, the new wine is my blood. The new wine is the Holy Spirit. It's not time for new wine yet, Mom. So Jesus foreshadowed what was to come. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Every word matters. The jars were made of stone. Jars aren't made of stone, usually. They're made of clay. Hmm. 
Most water jars were made of clay. And there's six of them. Six is the number of striving to be God but not reaching there. It's the number of the Antichrist. It's the, the fake person who tries to reach a place and doesn't get there. Six is the number that represents incompleteness yet a desire to be God. Seven is the number of God. Stone jars held more pure water. If you put water into a clay jar, the water came out kind of dirty. If you put it in a stone jar, it came out clean. Stone jars were used for purification, for washing your hands before you go to the temple, for, for all those things. It was a purifying water. Now notice these jars were empty when Jesus started. They weren't full of water. They weren't planning on purifying anything. This is a wedding. They're in the celebration mode. And yet Jesus says, take those pure vessels and fill them with water because I'm about to do something. Out of pureness, new wine's gonna come. New wine can't come out of earthen pots, pots that have dirt and other things in them. If we're gonna create new wine, if I'm gonna foreshadow to you what's to come, the water has to be pure. So Jesus turns old water into new wine. And he foreshadows how the Holy Spirit, the new wine will be poured out one day to replace the Jewish purification efforts that were never going to succeed. The very reason those vats existed, Jesus was coming to get rid of. You see, once he comes and his blood is poured out, there's no need to purify anything. He's already done it. And he said to them, now draw some of it and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he didn't know where it came from. Although all the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, new wine first, good wine first. That's what they serve. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, the watered down wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This wine was better than anything they've ever tasted. But notice that the good wine had been saved. You saved the good wine for later. You've kept the good wine to yourself until now. That's exactly what Jesus is foreshadowing. The true new wine, the best wine, the Spirit of God, the presence of God would come when the hour comes, but it's not yet here. There's a problem with new wine. New wine ferments quickly. Over time, it produces a lot of gas. It expands. It, it sits there. The wine expands, and the container has to be able to hold it. Only new wineskins have the flexibility to expand as the new wine expands. Jesus is foreshadowing his day, the hour that would come when blood would be poured out his blood would be poured out and the Holy Spirit would fall on his people and they'd be full of new wine that God promised the Holy Spirit. So one day, Jesus had an incredible moment with John's disciples. 
Let's look at it. Matthew 9, 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Notice something here. This isn't the Pharisees. It's not the Sadducees. It's not the temple leaders. These are the disciples of John the Baptist. They're asking Jesus, why are we like the Pharisees and your people are not? Why are your disciples not fasting? Now, it's interesting, two of these disciples would soon jump ship, leave John and start following Jesus. It's interesting that, well, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked and as, he walked, as Jesus walked by, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. They became followers of Jesus. They moved from disciples of John to disciples of Jesus. Now, it's up for debate who both of them were. The scriptures tell us one of them was uh, Andrew. Uh, we learn that in another scripture. The other one is most likely Philip. Philip, Peter, Andrew, they're all from Bethsaida. They were all likely there together. It's not really that important. Back to our story, why do your disciples not fast? Without going too far off tangent, they didn't need to fast because they didn't lack anything. They lived in the presence of Jesus. What else are they gonna ask for? And as long as Jesus is with them, they have no need to fast. Jesus' disciples didn't need to fast. John's disciples did. They didn't have Jesus with them. They had needs and desires. They had things that they needed to fast when they prayed. Fasting was a way of demonstrating a great need for God's hand to move. For the moment, Jesus' disciples were good. Jesus says something incredibly interesting here. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. The day will come when the bridegroom's taken away. Were we talking about weddings? The day will come when the bridegroom's taken away. Jesus chooses his words very carefully. The bridegroom will not go away. He's gonna be taken away. When that day comes, they will feel the absence of the bridegroom. They will feel the absence of God. And in their desperation for God, their personal grief, their realization of their need, that will lead them to fast. The bridegroom will be taken away. And then God's gonna do something new. They're asking about fasting and Jesus is looking ahead to the hour to come, the day to come, the real wedding to come when the new wine, the Holy Spirit, would come. It seems random, like Jesus just changed the topic. But he is the topic. And this is what he was talking about. The, they would one day fast when he's taken away. And when that new day occurred, new wine would come. So it's only natural that from that thought, as Jesus is thinking about the future day when new wine falls, out of the blue, he says this, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. 
If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. New wine ferments. Old wineskins can't hold it. Old wineskins are stiff. They're inflexible. They're unwilling to change or bend or adapt to what's been put in them. They resist change. They resist expansion. They resist the new. Only new wine in new wineskins can preserve both the wineskin and the wine. Now remember, Jesus is really talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to introduce something new, not to patch up something old. This is what salvation is all about. Jesus didn't destroy the old law. He fulfills it. But the old law is gone. The new law is here. Just like an acorn is fulfilled when it grows into an oak tree. Nothing wrong with the acorn. It served its purpose. But all along, it was designed to become an oak tree. Jesus explained that he didn't come to repair the old ways. He didn't come to repair the old institutions of Judaism. or He came to put a new covenant all together for all of us. The new covenant doesn't improve the old, it's new. It's like something that's never been seen before. It replaces it and it goes beyond it. Jesus' reference to wineskins was his announcement that the present institutions of Judaism were not going to be able to contain his new wine. The temple for all its glory, the sacrifices for all their impressiveness, the priests for all the way they're dressed, the people worshiping the building of the temple. None of that can hold the Spirit of God. Not the way God's going to do it. What he's saying is we can't take the old and bring new wine into it. It won't hold it. Both will be destroyed. Instead, Jesus says, I'm going to form a new institution, an institution of believers called the church. We'll bring Jews and Gentiles together in a completely new body. Jesus reminds us that what's old and stagnant can't be renewed or reformed. We got to move on. God will often look for new vessels to contain his new work, his new wine. Only a new person, spiritually reborn because of their faith in Christ, can hold the new wine, the Holy Spirit. In the example, the new wine is expansive. The fermentation process produces a great deal of pressure. Old and brittle wineskins won't be able to hold the stress and they're going to bust. The wineskin is a type of vessel. Through scripture, vessels are symbols for people. For Christians, there's an old man and now a new man. The old man represents the life we had before conversion. The new man is our new vessel. It's the life that happens and becomes of us because of conversion. But if we take the expansive and dynamic new wine, the Holy Spirit, and we attempt to pour that into our old life, we can be sure that we'll have a disaster on our hands. Our old lives, our old ways are entirely incompatible with the new wine. The new wine requires change and expansion and steady improvement While the old life, there's no desire or ability to change. 
Remember, the new wine is tied to the blood of Passover. The new covenant, the receipt of God's spirit, and the spiritual result that will be produced by those factors. Trying to cram all that into a person who is unwilling to change will invariably result in coming apart at the seams. The precious new wine is spilled on on the ground and sadly it's wasted. Paul said this, Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. What's the will of the Lord? Be filled with the Spirit. Die to your old self. Be a new vessel. Receive new wine. The old wine, our old life, our sinful life, our old container, our physical body, our sinful nature, it's got to be replaced. It's got to die. Don't get drunk with wine, he says. Be filled with the Spirit. Beginning back in Genesis, God began to teach us about new wine. New wine was promised, Genesis 27, 27. Isaac blessing his son, Jacob. Jacob blessing his son, like backwards. All right. So he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him. Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. Huh. The prophet spoke of it. Jesus taught it. The first miracle pointed to it. At Pentecost, the new wine came into newly reborn spiritual vessels and the world would never be the same again because God is doing something new. And they were amazed and perplexed and they said to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. Yes, that's it, exactly. These new vessels are filled with new wine of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. What about us? What about us? When mockers looked at those who received the Holy Spirit, they could tell that something had happened to them. They were different. They changed. They thought they were drunk, but at least they recognized something was different about them. Something happened to them. I'm concerned that mockers today look at spirit-filled believers and see nothing different, nothing unique. You can have a great-looking church without the Spirit of God. You can be a great-looking Christian in appearance without the Spirit of God. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit, alive and active in the life of believers that advances the gospel, nothing else. If the gospel is going to get advanced on this planet, it's going to be because new vessels, you and me, reborn in the Spirit, filled with the new Spirit, the new wine, go out to the world as God's temple, showing God to people and teaching them the gospel. That's how this works. Most people are filling churches today trying to fill their old lives with new wine. They've not repented or surrendered to the Spirit. They've just tried to add Him to their wineskins. 
They don't want to die to their old ways. They just want to spiritualize them. They want to improve them. That's not the new covenant. That's not what Jesus died for. He did not die to get a new and improved version of you. He died so that you can die and have a new and improved and new person in the spirit. We become new spiritual beings when we repent and believe. New wine has to go into new wineskins. We have to hate our old self. I keep saying this. We have to hate our old self like we hate cancer. Tell people all the time they have cancer. First two questions. What's it going to do to me? How do we get rid of it? I tell people they have sin. First two questions. How can I cover it up? And you're wrong. We have to want it out. We have to hate our old self so much because we can't hold the new spirit of God if we're holding on to the old. The symbolism of the flashpoint at Pentecost is that God is doing something new. Man's feeble efforts to to reach God are replaced with God's promise to reach man. The old Jewish laws, rituals, customs could not contain it, nor can your old sinful life or your thoughts or your ideas. What God is bringing is new. He ordained it. He sent the Messiah. He made a new covenant. He created a new spiritual being, and he sent new wine. We bring nothing to this transformation. Please recognize that. It's not about your performance. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how well you follow the commandments. God ordained it. He sent the Messiah. He made a new covenant. He created you as a new spiritual being, and he fills you up with new wine. None of that is you. All he requires of us, believe and surrender. Believe and surrender. And when you're finished believing and surrender, do it again. And every day when you wake up, believe and surrender. Because the more you surrender your old self, the more you will have spirit-filled capabilities. Believe and surrender. May God fill each and every one of us with new wine. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your word is true, that themes run through your word and show us truths that we didn't see before. Thank you, God, for the promise that one day we'd be freed from the shackles of our old lives, spiritually reborn and ready to receive all that the Spirit has for us. Holy Spirit, would you fall on this place? The next few minutes as we reflect and we Sing a worship song, God, would you just move in this place? Show to each of us any area of our lives where we're still holding on to the old. Get us, God, to hate our old selves like we hate cancer. And then through your power, God, get it out of us. And fill us with new wine. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name.